0: The first question I just have to ask is how you ended up in Denmark, because looking at your name and your background, I don't think it was written in the stars that you would end up in Copenhagen. What's the storyline and how did you end up in Saxo in Denmark?
1: Well, the reason why I ended up in Denmark is because of love. (laughs) My husband is not a Danish, actually he's Norwegian. Um, But while we were both working in finance in London, he was offered a job by one of his clients. It was a Brexit time and we were about to get married and we thought Denmark would have been a better fit for our family uh, than the UK. And uh, we really like it here, Christopher. Um, I think that uh, uh, Copenhagen is an amazing city and definitely good uh, life and work uh, balance. But my story in finance started uh, much longer ago. I studied uh, finance um, a, as a bachelor in the US, Northeastern uh, University. I did an internship uh, while I was there in New York with uh, Goldman Sachs. And then I moved on to, Nor- uh, to London, where I uh, earned my master's degree uh, at the London School of Economics. And after that, I was looking to enter in finance, but I didn't have idea of uh, where to go to also because at that time, 2010, there was a lot of topics um, overlapping. We were just fresh of the global financial crisis. And um, there was a lot of investment in compliance, and these kind of sectors, I was never really exposed into banking except for that internship in the back office of Goldman Sachs. So I really knew that I didn't want to be in the back office, I wanted to do something more proactive. And that's why then I explored um, career opportunities in sales, and uh, and then I was approached by Bloomberg um, And uh, at that time, I thought that Bloomberg was a great opportunity for me um, to understand uh, the buy side and the sell side and the various figures that are in finance that I didn't touch upon while I was in the US. And uh, that's why I embarked uh, in a career in sales there in Bloomberg, selling the terminal. And uh, after three years, I decided that it was time for me uh, to be in a sales role in finance, I wanted to deal with uh, financial products.
0: Seems like you have had experiences from Italy, US, U.S., U.K., even Mexico. How important, or in hindsight, how good is it to have been around different countries, different market environments to then today see it as a global strategist trying to understand how every piece is, sort of fits together in one way or the other.
1: I think uh, that uh, each experience that I had was uh, enriching in its own way. Um, uh, you touched upon the Mexico, for example, there I was uh, doing an internship for the United Nations, and uh, what I was doing I was uh, helping an economist uh, with a research on small and medium enterprises and why they cannot access finance. So it was all still quite a narrow focused and a technical, but um, you know also now when I look at markets, I look Latin America or other emerging markets. I understand why there are some challenges I had, and uh, as an investor, you know my my point of view it's different from what it was there. But I definitely consider what I learned in those instances when I invest in this kind of bonds.
0: Makes sense. So a bit of a fun question, but I think you're okay with it. So in Scotland, you can, you know, get the Lord title if you buy it, for instance, and you have a Bond girl title. So what do you have to do in order to attain that title? Do you have to go through hurdles or can you just uh, say that you are that you are?
1: Well, I'm called Bond Girl uh, because of a linguistic mistake. So it was my second or third day in SaxoBank, And uh, there was our CEO and founder, uh, Kim Fornes, on the floor. I was very eager to meet him. And I go to him and say, hi, I'm Altea, the new Bond Girl. And everybody heard it and started to laugh. <laughs> so that's how I earned the Bond Girl. Uh, title. I said it uh, uh, without actually referring to the Bond music, uh, Bond movies. But we, if we think about Bond and girl, I'm a girl and I work in the Bond market, so I'm very proud of the title.
0: Yeah, it's a great title. Maybe if we dive into to the Bond market. So just to keep it super simple. So just just to explain it by first principle. What do you say to people who are just starting out trying to understand the bond market, just to define what it is and how it works?
1: I would start off saying the bond market is the biggest market of them all, much bigger than the equity market. Um, So, when you think about the equity market, if it's easy for you to buy and sell a stock, here in Saxo Bank, we are trying to make it as easy to buy and sell a bond. And normally, when we talk about very good quality, um, and sovereign bonds, and uh, that's fairly easy to buy and sell. Um, then when looking at a bond, the way we talk a lot about yields, uh, literally what yields means is that if you buy a bond today with a certain uh, um, maturity at a certain yield, you're locking in that yield until maturity. So you give, um, you, you basically pay the price to, be, uh, to buy this fund, bond. You get a coupon while you hold this bond. And at maturity, you're getting that, um, that uh, uh, the principal, uh, that money that you paid before back. That's very different from the stock market because uh, you can say, like, oh, dividends, earnings, and so forth, but nothing is guaranteed in the stock market. Bond market, it's a safer investor investment. It guarantees a return, and it's very much in vogue again because yields are the higher, the highest that we have seen since two thousand and seven. So literally, if we look at the macroeconomic environment right now where the stock market is overvalued, and a bond gives you a decent 5%, and with a bond, I'm talking about the safest asset out there, US treasuries, then clearly the um, the incentive to buy stocks should decelerate in the foreseeable future because you can lock in 5%, but um, if there is a pricing in the, in the stock market that you might have to lose uh, much more money.
0: If if you're looking at the biggest misunderstanding maybe you know the first one that comes to mind if you're quite new is the relation between the interest rates and the bond price is that also like the first one but after that what do you think are there any big big misunderstandings when people are looking at the bond market
1: I think that now when people are looking at the bond market and really much looking at duration so everybody now is hyped about these uh, uh, austria centurion bond uh, that is trading at 35 dollars uh, at 35 cents on the dollars um so basically that's uh, it's very important for people then to, to understand that the way that they're thinking about that is um is very similar to how they think about the stock market they want to buy that uh, bond because they think that if uh, central banks can't Interest rates uh, that uh, that valuation is gonna go much higher, uh, and therefore uh, they are going to make forty uh, percent. So basically, they are comparing it to a stock. Uh, but the bond market uh, uh, right now is offering much better opportunities. So Chris, if you have uh, capital invested ten percent for ten years, you are doubling your investment, and uh, right now. If uh, there is a bonds out there that they can offer uh, 7, 8% for uh, 10, 15 years. And that's, and they pay not only, you know, like they are not uh, uh, in distress value. So basically I'm talking, uh, you know, well below 80, right? Uh, Like for example, the Austrian centurion bond, Uh, they are more expensive, but they pay a regular coupon. And uh, basically, what's the difference between one and the other? If you buy today the Austria Centurion bonds, and there is still uncertainty on how central banks are going uh, to behave uh, with uh, the current macroeconomic backdrop, and if these uh, rate cuts don't arrive, then you will be a bank holder because you're gonna lose money and uh, you don't see scope to sell that bond. But if instead that you buy a bond with, uh, I cannot say, you know, like the same maturity because it's 100 years and there is very little uh, bonds out there, but let's say you buy a bond with 10, 15, 20 years maturities that they pay a coupon of seven and 8% yearly. then at that point, uh, even if uh, you can collect that coupon, you can invest money elsewhere, and uh, at the same time, if inter- if a central banks are going to begin to cut interest rates, even that instrument will gain. Not only the centurion bond, obviously at a much um, slower pace, right? Because the modified duration in in a centurion bond is much larger than uh, in uh, in a. Um, in a bond with a greater coupon. But still, they will be gaining uh, in price uh, and uh, you can still uh, sell it at a premium um, while collecting these uh, coupons. So these are all uh, things that uh, need to be considered when uh, buying uh, bonds. And I think the duration topic, it's very hot right now. I'm on Twitter, everybody talks about the duration. Everybody wants uh, the Austrian Centurion bond. Um, And uh, I don't believe uh, that uh, at this point in time, uh, a lot of people uh, uh, make the comparison with uh, with a bond with uh, a, a different kind of profile like the one I said and described.
0: It's a great example. I think you you had one video out on Saxo where you broke down why to invest in bonds and what to consider. And you, I think you said that one of the risk factors is the inflation risk and the interest rate risk. Can you just explain that with simplicity for people? So because today it seems like the narrative is that, of course, you should buy bonds now if you compare it to 10 years ago and all the macro things going on. So but still... There's no free lunch, right? So is those two the typical risks that people just need to understand before buying bonds? So
1: when we talk about inflation risk and interest rate risk, we talk about uh, monetary policies from central banks and obviously inflation risk. What we talked about uh, in the past year is inflation risk. When you look at uh, sovereign bonds, normally you look at nominal yields, right? If inflation is high, that nominal yield will be eroded by inflation. And central bank, as, as a consequence, because their first mandate is to keep inflation under control, will also need the two high rates, exactly like we have seen in the in, in the past uh, uh, year and a half. So... What's uh, why uh, this is important? Uh, whoever bought uh, U.S. treasuries uh, or European sovereigns bonds last year um, has uh, seen the total return of their assets uh, falling uh, massively, right? But um, when you look, for example, at corporate bonds, right, they have uh, another component to it, which is the corporate spread. So what I'm trying to get at is that uh, not uh, even if you have uh, uh, rising interest rates, if you buy an instrument such as corporate bonds or inflation linkers, that they behave uh, somewhat differently, they are not as reactive to central bank monetary policies or inflation, people might still be able to build a buffer against the monetary policies. So right now we have uh, real interest rates in the U.S. above two uh, percent. I think ten years two and a half percent, and very front part of the yield curve around three percent. Right now, that kind of e- real yield, uh, it's uh, it's it's really enticing because we are we are having still inflation in the in the U.S. around three point seven percent is far above. Um, the uh, central bank target. So it means that central banks uh, are going to stay on hold uh, or hawkish uh, for a longer time because they need that number to go below three, right? But there is uh, a risk uh, and uh, this comes from uh, a lot of factors, geopolitical risk, uh, uh, you know, weather and so forth. Uh, that uh, commodities uh, start to pick up again. So inflation starts to pick up again in the last part of this year. And th- the problem with that is that if you hold a nominal bond, right? And I'm thinking about a US Treasuries at 5%. If the central banks continue to hike rates because inflation is on the rise, then you are going to be still uh, suffering. From uh, this monetary policy um, decision, but if you buy real rates, right, then uh, yes, you will still be losing money in total return, right, uh, kind of view because um, if interest rates are hiked, uh, you the yield on real, the, the real yields will continue to rise. But you have an inflation component that, if inflation rises, then the payment that you get from that bond and the principal you would get at maturity will be higher. So basically, it creates a bigger buffer against whatever happens, monetary policies or inflation. And a little bit is the same with corporate bonds. Why people look at corporate bonds if they are riskier than US sovereigns? The reason why they do that is because corporate bonds offer a pickup over U.S. Treasuries. So they offer a buffer against which if there is some uncertainty or volatility, that buffer can can work in preserving the valuation of their portfolio.
0: Just hearing that answer, now you understand how complex this world is, because if you're not into it, it's very hard to maybe truly understand everything. Um but if you were to you know, do a case study to see you know, the effects of interest rate, bonds, et cetera, it's the most natural thing just to go to the US and truly understand what happens in US treasuries and trickle it all the way down to companies, investors, et cetera.
1: Yeah, he, he definitely. Because everybody feels the pressure from US rates, right? Uh, not only US corporates, but also uh, European sovereigns. Like the reason why we have seen uh, European sovereign selling off uh, in the past couple of weeks has been because uh, we had higher uh, US treasury yields. So there is a lot of correlation in that sense. But now we are right to a juncture that, uh, um, it's a very difficult difficult environment for investors to to make a decision because we have uh, inflation that, as we said before, remains elevated, you know, almost 4%. We have uh, the economy that is decelerating, obviously. We have a conflict on the making in uh, in the Middle East. And... uh, investors are expecting that the Federal Reserve will not do anything anymore. But we cannot really exclude that because in the past 18 months, the Federal Reserve has been doing what the market was not expecting to be done. Like if we take, uh, maybe now I'm going a little bit more technical, but if if we look at the software, uh, futures, The software futures basically indicate what's the expectations in the future for Federal Reserve interest rates. So on the back of the SVB crisis in March, the three-month software futures for December 2024 was showing expectation of the Fed fund rate to be at 2.7%, you know. Now, we are at 5.5%, huge cuts in 2024. But uh, that went from 2.7% up until 4% recently. So, basically, what this is telling us that uh, our market expectations build in daily and things can change, but whatever the market is pricing might be wrong. And the market was wrong, clearly, in March. Because uh, right now we are in a completely different situation and the market might be wrong also today, right? The market now is pricing uh, uh, not only for um, rates to drop uh, to 4% uh, in 2024, but is pricing uh, rates to remain around 4% uh, for the next 10 years throughout all the curve. And then, you know, actually to rise as likely, I think like in 2028, 2029, that might be still wrong. So as an investor, it's very important to understand where are markets contradictions and try to trade with them
0: interesting I'm just uh, thinking when you're expl- explaining this that you know so many people always try to predict the future and looking at the data they have today to make an analysis on what will happen you know in five months and 10 months etc giving all the data you have in your head and all the things you have seen, how hard is that exercise to predict with certainty what will happen even in bonds and thing you and th- and in you know instruments you would think is a bit more stable than maybe a volatile stock.
1: I think it's impossible, Chris. Um, The problem is that, uh, you know, it's very easy in finance, uh, like in life, uh, to jump into conclusions. Uh, For example, uh, this week uh, we, the the war uh, between uh, Israel and Hamas started And there has been a lot of people that jump to the conclusion, oh, the Federal Reserve is done, is going to cut rates or, you know, like the U.S. is going to enter in a conflict. But realistically, uh, as a a strategist, you have to pick uh, all these views with a pinch of salt. To me a war between Israel and Hamas just means that we are heading towards a period of high volatility and high uncertainty. And how do I position for that? If I want to hedge my position and I want to lock in uh, the most, um, the best risk and reward ratio, for me, is trying trying to keep quality and to limit uh, duration risk, and the only way to do that is uh, trying uh, to get uh, you know like very well rated investment grade corpor- corporates, U.S. Treasuries, the safe haven, but remaining in the front part of the yield curve, because it is true that if the Federal Reserve engages in interest rate cut environment, the long part of the yield curve, so I'm talking like ultra long, 20 year plus, is going to drop. But we don't have the certainty that that's going to be the Fed's next step. And with the US inflation at 3.7%, and uh, interest rates at 5.5%, you know, the market's still working as a whole, and the economy still recording, expected to end the year in positive um, growth. I don't, uh, I don't see why the Federal Reserve would need to cut rates. And if it does, uh, then uh, at that point, uh, you can take on more risk. But so far, you know, uncertainty, volatility, you know, my, my first impulse is the one to limit risk.
0: Looking at who should invest in bonds, I think that's, that is also an interesting question because if for me, it seems like there is some inflection points either in terms of uh, years. So if you're 50 or 60, fixed income seems uh, a better idea than in, than if you're 20 and just want to have exposure to stock market and index funds. Or if you have a huge fortune, Maybe it's hard to psychologically you know, have a market crash and see that you're, you're losing 50% um, of your fortune. So just to try to break it down to who should really invest in bonds, because if you're young and not very rich, should you then invest in bonds? Or is that just a, a bad strategy if you're thinking compounding for the long term?
1: Bonds are never a bad idea. Bonds offer great diversification. So even those uh, investors that, that have a very massive uh, equity position, they would like still to look at safe heavens, like U.S. Treasuries, the bond, in order to diversify for um, you know a downturn in the stock market. And, uh, you know, I'm active in Twitter and what I see right now, it's a lot of people saying, uh, now I'm shorting stocks. They are, th- they are literally thinking that something is about to come. And when the people are massively short in stock, that movement is going to follow somehow, right? Um, it's true that in history, the correlation between stock and bonds uh, uh, have been negative. And that of lately, we have seen yields rising, which is bearish for bonds, and also uh, and stocks dropping. But at a certain point, that co- that correlation is going to be restored. And the best example has been this week with the um, Israel Hamas war, where did the investor go? Well, they went into the safe haven, the ten-year U.S. Treasuries, and uh, you know, like we have seen yields dropping massively. But it's also important uh, to notice uh, that uh, the drop in yield that we have seen is, is not being uh, caused only by, by a safe haven demands. No, that has been uh, caused because last week, uh, a lot of uh, investors uh, had massive short positions on long-term bonds. So if you have uh, some haven uh, demand this week because of the war, then of course, uh, Uh, bonds uh, are going to touch upon some certain levels uh, that is going to take them uh, yields uh, lower, right? So what we are seeing is a technical correction in yields. The problem is uh, what is going to follow? The war is war. We are going to have some headlines, but we still have inflation and uh, there is still a lot of uh, selling pressure. We have quantitative tightening. We have larger... Um, coupon uh, U.S. Treasury bond issuance uh, we have uh, repatriation of uh, foreign investors and all these things are real and they continue to happen despite the world yesterday we had a three-year U.S. Treasury auction Um, there was uh, the the lowest uh, foreign uh, uh, demand since October 2022 Um, we um, this this indicates that all these forces continue to add up, and as soon as we uh, take off that lead of the war, you know, yields might resume to rise. So, and this comes back to what we were saying before, you know, like uh, if uh, the the central bank, the Federal Reserve, is positioned to keep rates at these levels, maybe it's not convenient to take on migration risk.
0: Okay. So if you if I buy the premise that even though if you're a young professional, you need to have bond in your portfolio, how do you break it down on the next level? Are there any principles, risk profiles? Because like in the stock markets, it seems like the bond market has become quite sophisticated with products, ETFs, etc. So how do you navigate that whole market? Because that's also something that can be difficult for an investor to truly understand.
1: There is a big difference between ETF and cash bonds. So when you buy a cash bond, like we said before, you lock in a yield until maturity. It means that if you lock in a yield 5% and you wait two years, you're going to get back that cash. Right? ETFs don't work the same way. ETFs have underlying um, a lot of instruments. So what is good about them is that you get a lot of diversification. In some instances, they give you access to markets that otherwise you would not be able to access. Like, for example, I held corporate ETFs. Normally, the minimum size to buy one high yield bonds is around $50,000 to $100,000. So, you know, like if you are a small investor, even if you have $100,000, why would you put all your risk, all your money into a high yield bond, right? But instead, with ETFs, you can diversify. You can buy one ETF tracking high yield corporates and Within that ETF, there is going to be hundreds, thousands of different names. So even if one defaults, that's not going to affect massively uh, your investment. And that's all good. The problem with ETFs is because they don't have a maturity. Let's assume one is looking to buy the um, short-term U.S. Treasury ETF, right? Right. Um, I think that uh, the ticker for that one is uh, SHY, S-H-Y, um, and uh, it tracks U.S. treasuries uh, with maturity from one to three years, right? So what does that mean is that uh, the portfolio manager of that ETF will constantly buy and sell US treasuries in order to keep uh, the the maturity, the duration of that ETF in check, because you don't want to be too short. There is another ETF with maturity of less than one year, and you don't want either to be uh, long. The problem with that is that you cannot really manage, uh, manage interest rate risk, because if interest rates rise, You cannot just uh, keep your investment there and get back cash and maturity. The total return of all the ETF is going to be affected. And once that you sell it, you're going to pay for interest rate risk. But being said that, what is uh, good to know, and that goes back to our earlier conversation, is that uh, we might have reached some sort of peak in interest rate. Uh, Okay, there is still uh, the risk uh, that the Federal Reserve might hike again okay how many times once twice we definitely are not gonna see the federal reserve hopefully <laughs> because otherwise it's going to be a completely a complete uh, blowout um but um we are definitely not going to see uh, the the federal reserve hiking interest rates by 500 basis points right so What I'm trying to say is that as interest rate peaks, the ETFs uh, become a better instrument to diversify, to take exposure to um, specific parts of the market. And in some cases, like, for example, investment rate, corporate uh, ETFs uh, can create also a buffer because there is that credit spread component that we were talking about uh, that uh, might... uh, uh, provide a buffer against rise in interest rates.
0: That's a, that's a great way of breaking it down. So in the stock market world, let's say you have so many inspirations, you know, different investors who write books, etc. In the fixed income world, do you also look at investors or funds or companies who are producing alpha relative to all the other peers, or is it more a uh, uh, a bit less unknown world, if you get what I'm saying. Do you have like an environment or companies who are spectacular in their way of investing in fixed income?
1: Oh, absolutely. You have uh, normally the biggest players in uh, in the fixed income environment are hedge funds, right? Uh, but every like the thing is that uh, bonds are an instrument that are used widely. So hedge funds look at them speculatively uh, in a speculative way. But uh, bonds, uh, U.S. Treasury sovereigns, uh, they are normally traded uh, and invested by, um, by Treasury departments, of companies, of uh, banks, central banks, right? In a certain way, also, the ECB <laughs> is invested uh, in, uh, in the bond market. Um, so there is always the lookout and the different kind of views that you get from each of these players is going to be different because probably um, a bank, I'm not talking about a central bank like the ECB, but a proper you know, private bank is going to look at sovereigns and their bond investment from a different perspective than a hedge funds clearly. And their way to create an alpha is going to be much more aggressive from a hedge fund. Uh, like in you know, a hedge funds than uh, than in a private bank.
0: Maybe also, uh, I know that we touched upon it already, but just to specify it, if you look at bond investors or funds, those who are building uh, a fund on the high yield market, maybe in a specific location, that usually comes with more risk, right? Because if you lend money to a company who is in need of money, and maybe the environment, like we're going through now, higher interest rates, maybe a recession then it will, of course, come with a lot of risk. And then you can maybe in a couple of years look back and say who gave the loans out to the companies who survived and managed to get the cash back. Because I don't know, if, the, if you hit a recession, a lot of companies will have to default at some point, I guess. Yeah,
1: but that's that's half to the investor to decide. You know, there is a lot of greed out there, uh, Chris. And of course, if you're greedy, why would you invest in the U.S. investment grade market that is paying 6% when you can invest in the high yield corporate bond market that is paying you 9% in yield? You know, definitely you want to receive 6% or 9% yearly. I definitely want to receive 9%, but the problem is that to get that 300 basis points pick up uh, you have uh, really to trust uh, that uh, the household card is not going to fall.
0: And is also, if you look at that, it's just a horror story always, the, the US crash with the junk bonds, etc. Or do you think you will see that again in the future in a different structure, etc?
1: It's very hard to see what is coming. But uh, we can definitely talk to about what we have seen in the past year. And what we have seen, we've seen uh, a banking crisis some, somehow uh, in uh, in the UK uh, during the mini budget crisis in September because uh, with rising interest rates, a lot of uh, derivative positions, uh, um, you know, triggered margin calls and a lot of uh, pension funds uh, didn't have the money, the cash to cover it up. Uh, we have seen the SVB crisis in March in uh, in the US, so it would be naive to think that uh, nothing else is coming, right? Um, so and that's why I go back to to what we were <laughs> to, to what I've been saying since the beginning of uh, the call. You know, like you want to be as conservative as you can. It's true. That uh, you might not outperform market. Uh, Look at those people that were expecting a crisis last year, and uh, the the stock market, uh, you know, the Nasdaq uh, went uh, basically like exploded. (laughs) But um, but uh, it's uh, it's it was uh, unforeseeable, and uh, it's very hard to make uh, those. uh, Uh, decisions uh, in a rational uh, way. What is rational right now is uh, to understand that uh, we are in an unprecedented uh, kind of uh, interest rate environment. We didn't see this since 2007. Uh, In 2007, that was followed uh, by uh, a very deep crisis. If we look at other environments, when the Federal Reserve has hiked, not only the Federal Reserve, but also the ECB, We've seen that everything has been followed by some sort of crisis uh, and that uh, definitely this is going to come again but uh, does that mean that then because at a certain point in the future uh, central banks are going to cut rates which they will you know the problem is when right does that mean that i have to go and buy my austria centurion bond <laughs> Uh, probably not, because we have seen that right now the the position of central banks uh, is to put pressure on the economy, and uh, until that is in um, in, in uh, a place, uh, um, my appetite uh, to increase duration risk uh, is not strong. But it will become strong, and it will be in the. In the I tell you, last week. It was tempting to enter 10 year US Treasuries at 4.8%. There has been the 30 year US Treasuries at 5%. Amazing levels, amazing levels, not only for speculators, but also for buy and hold uh, uh, pension fund kind of uh, uh, investors that they want to secure, you know, like solid yield, uh, risk free for the next uh, 30 years in made absolute uh, sense. The rally this week, you know, a correction after the sell-off we have seen, it's absolutely um, understandable. Uh, my question is, uh, can it last? Can it last? Obviously it's helped by what is happening in the Middle East. Um, yes, it could last, but uh, you know, like I want to see that CPI print going lower Um, even though there is a a war in the Middle East because war means uh, higher inflation but also means bigger spending and bigger spending uh, comes with uh, more bond issuance. So both of them are bearish for bonds.
0: But I think your summary is spot on. And also, when you're talking about these returns, you can lock in, there are sort of unprecedented looking 10 years back, you know, so maybe people should realize what a good opportunity is when it comes around. Uh, Just some some fun questions to end the conversation with, because one of my favorite reports uh, comes from Saxo every year, and it's about outrageous predictions. I know you can not share what's going to be there, but can you tell a bit about the report, uh, why it is important to think uh, scenarios that may not happen, but like you said, you need to also uh, expect unexpected at times. So can you just explain a bit how that report works and when it will be out?
1: It will be out. uh, Normally, it's out in December, beginning of December. And uh, we are currently uh, working on it. No spoilers, because I cannot. (laughs) But uh, the the reason why we produce it every year, and we are quite proud about it, is that uh, we put forward uh, some uh, scenarios that uh, investors will be outraged with. You know, they would never position for them to... Appear, but uh, somehow in history showed that uh, they might happen. Like, for example, Brexit. Um, it was one of uh, the teens' outrageous predictions uh, in 2016, I believe. Uh, that were before 2015, obviously, because uh, if a Brexit was 2016. But um, it's just a brainstorming uh, to understand. Uh, um, not brainstorming, is just a different way to look at markets and to understand that uh, the rug can be pulled uh, out from our feet any any time in the future. So um, one can feel strongly about uh, their Austria-Centurion bonds and this week is going to be like a perfect uh, uh, investment to hold. Uh, but uh, when that goes the other way, it can go fairly quickly. And it's not only. I'm so sorry. I think that I have been, <laughs> I've been uh, bothering all the people uh, holding uh, this bond. Uh, it, it's not about the Austria Centurion bond, uh, but uh, it, it's about all investments. Uh, like for example, uh, uh, you know, bull flattening, boom steepening, uh, bear. You know, like all these kind of positioning. And uh, um, you can, it's very easy as an investor to enter into the market and start to love that position you know like maybe the best uh, way to describe it uh, or the, mis- the best comparison is uh, to look at tesla and think about all those people holding tesla they love their tesla right and uh, but uh, realistically there has been ups and downs even there so you know don't uh, don't get to love your investments. Don't love things that they don't give you back love. <laughs> that's the main thing. It's important to look at them objectively and yeah. to understand that anything is possible and things can change from one day to the other, exactly as it happened this week with the war in the Middle East.
0: Well, that's a perfect ending. Thank you so much for taking the time. It was a pleasure having you on and uh, yeah, very valuable lessons.
1: Thank you, Christopher, for inviting me in.
0: If you like this episode and the content we produce, head over to my YouTube channel. Just type in Christopher Vonheim. See you next time. All opinions expressed by Christopher Vonheim or his guests on this podcast are only their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Vonheim. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Christopher Vonheim as a specific reason to invest or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only.